The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. You're dying. Bitch. Cute. I'm sure she thought she was a real pro. I feel a little bit safer. Not totally safe. I'm still shaking a bit, but a little bit safer. I refuse to live in fear. I am not bleeding hard, my bro. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. Not like spilled food. Not like vomit. Not even like not even like diarrhea. The worst mess possible. And some tiny little respect. I was doing my civic duty. The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open. Uh. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea, and with me as always is the beautiful, the lovely. Annie Weebs, how's it going, Shea Bay? Almost Thanksgiving, Annie. And you would think that Thanksgiving is a time where we sit down with our families, we gather around, and we're thankful for a lot of things in our lives. But what if, just what if, murder happens on Thanksgiving Day? Dun, dun, dun. That makes me feel like we're going to talk about murder on Thanksgiving, Shay. Is this the truth? Yes, we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving and not the awesome horror movie that's out there, which we have to watch this Thanksgiving. There's a there's a movie, it's called Thanksgiving, it's right? It's terrible. And it's about this turkey that goes around and kills people, the pilgrims. It's a very terrible, cheap movie, but I love it. My friend Luke Hartman introduced it to me, and I, I love it, and I still have yet to show it to Annie and her brother Taylor. But yes, we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving murder stories today. 
We are. So I have a tail and you have a tail. These are both... Let's tell a tale together. So these are both rather gruesome. Listener discretion is advised because we're going to go into details of these crimes. So hold on to your butts. This is all about Thanksgiving terror. Yay. So before we get into our Thanksgiving stories, I want to reiterate a little bit about... We talked about it before, but... We have a couple episodes left this year before we take our little hiatus. Uh, For those of you who don't know at this point, obviously, we're we're about to have a kid. We got a date nailed down today, the day we're recording right now, but we got a date nailed down today of when Annie's going to go and get birthed. (laughs) I'm not going to get birthed. Well, (laughs) Rory's going to get birthed. Rory's going to get birthed. I'm going to be induced. Yes, yes. But we have that date nailed down. So we got a couple episodes for you. left and maybe a snippet before the end of the year we also plan on releasing you're not going to hear from us for a couple weeks after we release our last episode we are going to release for you uh, a merry merry christmas episode and it's going to be a good one we talked about it last year on, on a show annie was on when she was on the radio before paranormal warehouse and we laughed our asses off like it was funny so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that and i'm looking forward to it Mary Krampus it is upon us, and it's always my favorite show to do for the year. So we won't say anything more about it. You guys will just have to tune in and within the next few weeks and hear our Christmas farewell. If you don't realize, me and Annie like to incorporate Halloween in every holiday that we have. Like we Thanksgiving, do. we're going to talk about some crazy crime stuff. And, you know, Christmas, we're going to talk about scary stuff as well. One more thing before I, Annie's looking at me, because I always ramble on. Every time we, we talk, I always ramble on. I'm the guy always rambling. Rambling, rambling Shay. Want to give a huge shout out. We were on an episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories uh, that just got released uh, this past Wednesday. Uh, we want to thank Jerry and Tracy Polly for having us on board. And a weird story that coincides with this. And I meant to tell you this earlier, Annie, but I forgot. when you When you came home today... Okay, so I get in the shower and I'm like, I'm going to, I listen to podcasts when I'm in the shower sometimes. So I'm going to listen to this episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories. So I get in the shower and Jerry starts out talking about a weird paranormal tale that happened in a place in West Virginia. He said Smithville and it had three, two other names of this, of this city in West Virginia. It's a little no name rinky ding town, right? In West Virginia. So here's the odd thing that happened today and this has been happening to me a lot lately is that I was sitting in line at this scrapyard because I had all this copper wire that I was scrapping from a job a leftover from a job and this truck pulls in next to me and this is before I got home this is before I'd heard the hillbilly horror story episode I'm sitting there and this truck pulls in and it's got mud flaps on it and the mud flaps say Smithville Smithville West Virginia and I was like I have, there's 50 million little towns in West Virginia I've never heard of. I've never heard of Smithville. Lo and behold, I turn on Hillbilly Horror Stories, and that's where the story, he's talking about the city of Smithville. That's weird. I don't know where Smithville is either, and I'm a West Virginia native, so that's interesting. Your six degrees of separation are all coming together lately, Shay. Do, 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 Oh, we're not even in Halloween anymore. Kind of like the Mason Penny that I got last week. Yeah, the Ma- tell that story real quick before we get into this. This is a weird story. So I know that a couple of weeks ago when I was not feeling well, 
Russ Ryan stood in for me and you guys recorded an episode about MK Ultra. And a lot of that has to go back with, you know, you've talked about uh, the Masonic influence in a lot of these cultures and clubs and all this kind of stuff. And so last Thursday, I had to work late. I was working a seminar and I was registering patients coming through And a man comes by and says, you know, I'm obviously very pregnant. And he asked me how long I have. And, you know, is it a girl or a boy? Just the basic stuff, you know, when when you're eight months pregnant and people are noticing your belly. And so he asked me where the bathroom is. He goes to the restroom and he comes back. And when he comes back, he has something in his hand and he hands it to me. And he said, you put this in her piggy bank. Make it the first thing in her piggy bank. And so I look down at it and it's this bright, shiny penny But on the penny is the stamp of the Masons. Ooh. And so I just kind of give him this look. And I think he didn't think I knew what it was. And I said, that's the Masonic uh, symbol, isn't it? And he said, yes, it is. I'm a Mason and and we make these. I said, oh, that's very interesting. And he said, what, they mint their own pennies? Is that what he means? (laughs) I guess it's like a stamp. Like when you go to the amusement park and you put a penny in there and they squash it down and, you know, put a picture or something on it. This one had the Masonic symbol on it. And so I stuck it in my pocket and said, oh, well, thank you, sir. You know, but it seems like a lot of the stuff that we have researched lately has had ties to the Masons. Your obsession with Curse of Oak Island, obviously one of them. Yeah. Go Laginas. So there you go. That was my weird Mason penny. I don't, It's still here somewhere. I have no idea. Find a Mason penny, pick it up, and all the day you'll have an Illuminati following you around. Probably so. Yeah. All right, Shay. So, so here we go. We're going to talk about a crazy story, two crazy stories about murder on everybody's Second favorite holiday, Thanksgiving. It's been more than two years since Joel Guy allegedly murdered both of his parents, then proceeded to dissolve their bodies in acid. But today, he made his first appearance in court. The man at the center of the brutal double murder of his own parents appearing in court for the very first time. Who else was staying in the house on Thursday? Joel Guy is accused of stabbing his mother and father to death, then dismembering them and dissolving their bodies in acid over the 2016 Thanksgiving weekend. In court, Guy took the witness stand at his own hearing, not talking about the crimes themselves, but detailing the aftermath, like the injuries to his hands. I had some rather severe cuts on my hands. Um, I had a cut on my right palm right here where there's a scar, and I was like, a uh, very severe cut on my left palm where there's a scar. All right, Shay, the first story that we want to tell everyone is one that I have entitled Thanksgiving Terror, the Joel Guy Murders. In 2016, on the Monday following a long Thanksgiving weekend, police were called to the home of 61-year-old Joel Guy Sr. and 55-year-old wife Lisa Guy, who hadn't been heard from since the day after Thanksgiving. It was now Monday morning and Lisa Guy hadn't shown up for work. Out of character for Lisa, her boss called police to do a welfare check on the couple. When the officer arrived, 
He accessed the family's home using the garage door opener found in Joel Guy Sr.'s car still parked in the driveway. The scene that police walked into that morning is one that even the most seasoned officers say they could never forget. According to other members of the Guy family, Joel and Lisa spent Thanksgiving with their three daughters and their only son, Joel Guy Jr. The daughters all left on Thanksgiving after the celebration, but Joel Jr. stayed behind. Joel Jr. was attending college and living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and was largely financially dependent on his parents. His parents had recently voiced their concerns over their son's financial instability and had made it known that they planned to talk with him about this over the holiday break. The disturbing events that followed that weekend led police to believe that, if the conversation took place, it could have been the catalyst for the gruesome scene left behind in the family home. When police entered the home, the first oddity they encountered was the heat in the house. The temperature was 93 degrees. Heaters had been plugged in and turned on throughout the house. Officers could hear a dog barking in a room somewhere upstairs. Walking through the kitchen, they found a pot boiling unattended on the stove. The smell that permeated the home was the second definitive clue that something was very wrong. I bet you that place, if I can guess what's going on here, I bet you that place reeked. So 93 degrees, and then you walk in, and you know the heat is the first thing that hits you. And then the smell is the second. Described as a strong mixture of chemicals and decay, it was only made worse by the heat in the home. As officers climbed the stairs, they encountered a scene they would never forget. There was blood everywhere. Down the hallway, on the walls, on the floor. They found a pair of scissors and clothing that appeared to have been cut from a body along with a large knife. They found bottles of peroxide, bleach, acid, and rubbing alcohol. As they approached the bathroom, they found the first of the remains of Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy, but not their entire bodies. Found first in the couple's bathroom was a pair of severed human hands. Officers would soon find plenty more body parts, many inside Tupperware storage containers strewn throughout the home. Joel and Lisa Guy had been brutally attacked, murdered, and dismembered, inside their own home. Oh, and on the pot boiling on the kitchen stove, inside that pot was Lisa Guy's severed head. What is the deal with people who want to dismember bodies? Like, you, it's, there's been several stories I've read where people want to boil the head. Like, what is it just fascination or what is the deal? Like, is this guy planning on cannibalizing? I mean... I have no idea. Turkey not good enough? Well, I mean... <laughs> oh, God. Jesus, like, what's going on? Not a clue. There was a story that happened in New Orleans where this guy came in there and he just he dismembered his girlfriend after killing her. It's one of that like the haunted houses that are that are in I think it's Rampart Street house. And he did the same thing. He just said he cut up her body in the bathtub, left half of it in the bathtub dismembered, and her head was in a pot boiling. Weird. It's I don't understand the fascination. Yeah, I don't I don't know that. I've never had the urge to boil anybody's head in a pot. So, I don't know. Can't answer that one. To be determined. Sorry. Police did not broadcast any news about the gruesome murders and mutilation until two days later when they had a suspect in view, and that suspect was the couple's own son, Joel Guy Jr. The crime scene was so gruesome and toxic that the arriving investigators were forced to wear hazmat suits as they gathered evidence. Joel Guy Jr. was nowhere to be found. The solution the victims were found in was a mixture of liquid fire which is a corrosive drain cleaner, hydrogen peroxide, 
a sewer cleaner, and bleach and caused them to suffer excessive decomposition. Investigators were still able to identify the bodies, but it was difficult to determine the cause of death immediately. It was later determined that the guys suffered multiple vicious stab wounds and were possibly even tortured. To let this guy watch too much Breaking Bad, taken after Walter White or something? I don't know. To just destroy the body? He did put their bodies in plastic containers, which is the one thing that we learned from Breaking Bad. If you're going to put a body in corrosive liquid, don't do it in anything ceramic. It's got to be that plastic. Yeah, Jesse learned the hard way. Disclaimer, but that that doesn't mean that's anything we've ever thought about. It was on Breaking Bad. Spoiler, if no one's watched Breaking Bad. On Tuesday, the following night, Joel Guy Jr. was arrested outside his Baton Rouge apartment and charged with first-degree murder. Authorities assumed that he worked alone, killing his parents sometime between Friday evening and Saturday afternoon. He stayed in the house with their remains until Sunday, when he drove his car back to Baton Rouge. Guy stated that he had driven back to his home in Baton Rouge to seek medical attention for himself. Guy's sisters told police that nothing seemed amiss with their brother during Thanksgiving and that there were no family disputes that day. Authorities were not aware of any history of mental illness and that Guy had no criminal record. In December 2018, Guy appeared in court for the first time and actually took the stand in his own defense. Instead of talking about the crimes, he instead discussed his own injuries that occurred over that holiday weekend. He stated, quote, I had some rather severe cuts on my hands. I had a cut on my right palm, right where there's a scar. I also had a very severe cut on my left thumb, where there's also a scar. I was worried about losing my left thumb, so I needed medical treatment. <laughs> he drove nine hours back down to Louisiana to seek treatment for his injuries after the murder of his parents. He said, quote, I didn't have health insurance, so I was completely dependent on the LSU Student Health Center for my medical treatment. I went back to Louisiana to seek medical treatment there. Evidence revealed that Guy had taken out money before and after his parents' murders, $9,200 to prepay his apartment rent in Baton Rouge, and another $100 in spending cash. As of today, no recent news has been posted in regards to Joel Guy's murder indictment, and the case is still pending. It was stated in court that Guy would need to undergo psychiatric evaluation to determine his mental capacity before standing trial. So this guy was, uh, in, in Annie's research, I actually was like sitting there when she was showing me pictures of this guy. This guy looks like a wacko. He looks okay. He looks insane. like a severe wacko. He does. And one of the clips that you heard in the beginning of the of the episode is him on the stand talking about, you know, uh, being asked questions, being interrogated. But this guy, like, legitimately is a, a creepo, and it's said that he his parents were going to have a discussion with him about basically cutting him off from you know from for money because he'd been living off them for since he was a kid obviously they're still leeching off his parents couldn't get his life together and they were basically going to have a conversation so they think that might have been the catalyst but as Andy said the case is still ongoing and we don't have any further details about what 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 what's going to happen so to this, this is guy. one of those cases that if it happens and we find it then we will bring it to you guys but i just thought that was the most insane story number one that it just happened a few years ago i'd never heard of it uh, and Man, you would think something as gruesome as that, like he dismembered his own parents yeah. on thanks- after Thanksgiving, and you, you would think you would hear it be all over the news. So remember, no matter how badly your family fights over the holidays, 
it could always be worse. You could have been Joel Guy Jr.'s family member. Listen, and no disrespect to the Guy family either, but if the turkey's that bad, I mean, go to Bob Evans. Wah, wah, terrible joke. For those of you guys who don't know Bob Evans, it's a restaurant. It is. It's very good down on the farm. Okay, Shay. So you've got a second Thanksgiving story. Okay, so I got a story about a guy who uh, was being robbed, and that's in quotation marks, on Thanksgiving Day 2012 in Little Falls, Minnesota. Okay, and this guy's name is Byron David Smith. He was uh, formerly a U.S. State Department employee, and he had a history of internal uh, travel to Moscow, Bangkok, and Beijing. So he was a, you know, he was a well-versed, traveled dude, and on Thanksgiving Day 2012, that all changed for him. Okay, Shay, so like you said, Smith was 64 years old and retired from the U.S. State Department, and his brother said that he was a retired security engineering officer. So this guy was somebody who knew about security, he knew about weapons, and maybe was just a little on the slightly paranoid side. Yeah, it sounds like he might have been on edge about a lot of stuff. Smith claimed at his trial later that prior to the murders, he had been burglarized at least half a dozen times over the preceding months. He had only reported one previous burglary to the police, and investigators had only found evidence of two prior burglaries, one which had occurred in his garage. Smith began wearing a holster with a loaded gun inside his home at all times, as well as stashing bottles of water and granola bars in his basement where he frequently stayed. So he is definitely, he's paranoid. He was paranoid. There was some evidence that Kiefer and Brady had committed the previous break-ins, and Brady was being investigated for prior burglaries, including one earlier on the day that they were both killed. Smith had installed a security system to protect himself. So a lot of what happened during these murders was actually caught on film. There was audio. So this is how they were able to go back and basically decipher what happened on this day. And that's an important part of the case because it actually leads up to why he was convicted. So on Thanksgiving Day, November 22nd, 2012, Smith claimed that he had been visiting a neighbor's house, and when he came home, he drove his vehicle back down the road, but parked in front of the neighbor's home. Later that day, Kiefer and Brady broke into Smith's home. Video surveillance captured all of this and captured them casing the property prior to the break-in. According to Smith, he had been visiting the neighbors when he saw Kiefer who he suspected was responsible for the burglaries, driving towards his home. Smith then said that he needed to, quote, get ready for her and went back into his house. Upon entering the home, Smith turned on a recording device that he owned. This was like a handheld recorder. He removed light bulbs from ceiling lights and positioned himself in a chair that was out of view. He heard the upstairs window break And then he waited in silence for about 12 minutes. They verified all of this through the audio recording device and the video until Brady descended into the basement. Smith shot Brady twice while he stood on the stairs and once in the head after he fell to the bottom of the stairs. Smith then taunted the dead Brady, wrapped his body in a tarp, and dragged him into another room. He went upstairs and 10 to 15 minutes later went back into the basement, 
reloaded his weapon, and took his previous position in the chair. A few minutes later, Kiefer entered the home and could be heard calling her cousin's name. As she made her way down the same stairs, Smith shot her as well. She fell down the stairs, wounded, and could be heard on the recording screaming, I'm sorry, oh God. Smith shot her again, multiple times in the torso and one in her face next to her left eye with a 22 caliber revolver. He repeatedly called her derogatory names and then dragged her into another room, tossed her body on top of her cousins, and shot her one final time under the chin, killing her. God damn. So, th- I mean, th- this, this totally sounds to me like premeditation. And that's what he, you know, one of the premises of why he was convicted, because they said it was premeditated. And it makes me believe, like, if they think that these two people were already you know, suspected of robbing him this many times. Maybe they weren't. Maybe he actually killed other burglars who broke into his house. Or maybe he was never really burglarized before. Maybe he caught these these two casing the place a couple times, but he just said, oh, I'd been burglarized, and that was part of his defense to protect himself. Another crazy part of this story is that Smith did not immediately report the break-in or the murders of these two teenagers to police. Smith waited until the next day to notify police of the killings, saying that he didn't want to bother police on Thanksgiving. That's a little nutty. What I don't understand is why why did he put on an audio recorder and start recording it? He knew he had security devices in the home. That's something that just doesn't make any sense. He's recording this whole thing, giving himself like an alibi, like or just to let police know that, yeah, they were breaking in here and I just wanted everyone to hear that I was defending myself. I think that's what he was attempting to do, but in retrospect, it was almost like the damning evidence because you hear him standing over these bodies kind of taunting these children who broke into his home. Yes, they broke in, but... He was, you know, kind of lying in wait there for him. Then. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, he, he took light bulbs out. It was all he was like staging, staging a murder. Smith's later statements to police described delivering kill shots to the heads of both victims after he had shot them on the stairs and they had fallen to the basement floor. In his statement, Smith said that Kiefer had let out a short laugh after she fell down the stairs, saying, If you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you, you go again. The audio tape didn't record Kiefer laughing. Instead, she says, oh God. In police interviews, Smith acknowledged, quote, firing more shots than I needed to, and that he fired, quote, a good, clean finishing shot into Kiefer's head. Jesus Christ. This guy had this planned, and he had it planned. He he knew they were going to come back. And he baited him. I mean, did the dude moved his car in front of his neighbor's house so they wouldn't think anyone was home. So they would come deliberately come in there. This was deliberate. I think this is a, a, a case where they got it right. In addition to his home surveillance system, Smith also recorded at least six hours of audio on a digital recorder in the basement of his residence. Before the break-ins occurred, he is heard saying, quote, in your left eye. And I realize I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of the lawyers here. He's like rehearsing this as he's he's playing it out in his mind. I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of your lawyers here. 
<laughs> for six hours. Well, this dude, for one, sounds like he's a paranoid. He's paranoid about something. He says that he's had his house burglarized over a dozen times. I mean, this is just a case of some whack job looking to murder somebody and trying to justify it by saying he was being targeted. After the shootings, Smith made numerous statements, including, quote, I am not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. Not like spilled food. Not like vomit. Not even like diarrhea. The worst possible mess. And I was stuck with it in some tiny little respect. I was doing my civic duty. If law enforcement system couldn't handle it, I had to do it. I had to do it. The law system couldn't handle her and it fell into my lap and she dropped her problem in my lap. And she threw her own problem in my face. And I had to clean it up. So what is he like, Dexter Morgan here? He's like laying all this out like, okay, you hear him talking about, now I need a lawyer. Now he's basically saying why he did it. Because he's claiming that police never came to his rescue, even though he had only reported one burglary to the local police. Well, and they probably didn't take it seriously. Here's what I see this guy. He just automatically assumes that no one's going to help me. I'm paranoid. Got to take matters into my own hand. He knew from the second that it happened, he was angry. He was upset that somebody was taking advantage of not just him, but there's people out there that do this all the time, take advantage of people, and he was going to stop it. And he did. Smith's recorded statements, the evidence indicating that he had planned the shootings and the excessive number of shots fired led to him being charged with second-degree murder. He was initially charged with two counts of second-degree murder, but in April of 2013, he was now indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. His bail was set at $50,000, which was later posted. Legal analysts have stated that these shootings most likely would have been justified under Minnesota's law if he had just shot them once, but the subsequent shots were not justified once any threat had been removed. So one shot to injure them on the stairs, to keep them from coming down there, they said, Castle Doctrine, that would have been justified. But you shot these kids nine times. We cannot justify that. That is, that's murder. It's overkill. It's, it's murder. overkill. And, you know, yeah, you, you in, either incapacitate somebody, but... He lied in wait. He recorded it. I mean, he he had this planned. He had a plan. He was going to do something about it regardless. On April 29th, 2014, Byron David Smith was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder with premeditation and on two counts of second-degree murder after three hours of jury deliberation. He was immediately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The audio recordings were named by the jurors as the biggest influence on their decision. That was the most damning piece of evidence in my mind, said one of the jurors. The audio recording of the actual killings and the audio recording of Mr. Smith's interview immediately after his arrest pretty much convinced me that we were dealing with a deranged individual. What absolutely deranged. I mean, he didn't call the cops till the next day because he didn't want to bother him on Thanksgiving. He just didn't want to get caught. He had to give it a night to think about it. So that is the Thanksgiving slaying uh, by Byron David Smith of the two teenagers, Haley Kiefer and Nicholas Brady. It's kind of controversial. Yeah, you you almost feel bad for this man because 
he says he's experiencing these break-ins. These kids did break into his house, but at the same time, you know, one shot could have stopped both of them in their tracks. And if he, he was a specialist like he's listed, he could have easily incapacitated them to the point where he could have been like, hey, shoot him in the leg. They can't move. The girl comes in, shoot her in the leg or tell her, you know, he's going to shoot her and call the cops. I mean, that that's what you do. I remember seeing this one on TV. I don't remember what show it was on, but they actually talk to uh, the family members of both those teenagers, of Haley and Nicholas, and you feel sorry for them. You do. But at the same time, you have to realize uh, this man went above and beyond and what maybe whatever he experienced in his career as a security officer traveling overseas it really seems to have warped his mind. So yeah, these kids were in the wrong, but they were still kids and it didn't have to end that way. And those crazy audio recordings of him basically stating his uh, his own defense, he just, he really dug his own grave. Yeah, he, he 100% did. And like I said, it was overkill. Absolutely overkill. And there was no reason for it. You can make wrongs right by doing penance, I do believe. I do believe that some people, you know, you burglarize a house, you need to pay for it. You know, it's it's somebody else's property. If you break into you, someone's house, if somebody came into our house right now and I felt danger, I would shoot. If I shot to kill, then you shoot, to, then, then, then that's what happens. But this is a case of he lied in wait, he planned it, he knew what he was going to do, and I think he's where he's supposed to be. I do want to ask you a weird question, though. Like You mentioned that he was he was bonded out. He got a $50,000 bond. Isn't that weird for somebody who has two counts of first-degree murder? I don't know. Maybe they took into account um, his age. Maybe they were still looking at details of the case. Maybe he really presented it to or the court. Or maybe he just, because he was a federal employee at one point, he had some pull. He knew some people. Maybe he knew some people. I don't know. But they, they described him previously as kind of a recluse. You know, he got along well with his neighbors, but they said, you know, he basically stayed to himself. And so I don't know that anybody knew that he would go to they those lengths. He yeah. wasn't a flight risk or I don't anything? Th- no, I, I don't think he was a flight risk. And, you know, they were probably still trying to figure out the evidence because from the beginning until these audio recordings and until the video comes out, it just basically sounds like he was a scared elderly man. These kids broke into his house and he was just defending himself. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense, Annie. God, you're so smart. Thank you. I always wanted to be an attorney, but I would have been the attorney like Reese Witherspoon on Legally Blonde. That's the kind of attorney I think I would have been. Probably I pro- not. I, I probably, probably would, would have been, been a totally hard nose. I probably would have been Saul Goodman. You probably would have been. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Whatever. So guys, you've listened to us for almost a year now and it's winding down to the end. And I just want to say before we go this week, with a heartfelt thank you, I'm thankful for all of you for all the support you've given to me and Annie this past year. Anybody who's listened to the show, who shared you know, our posts, who shared the podcast, who's talked about it, who's had us on their show to talk about it. Uh, special thank you again to Jerry and Tracy Polly of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Always my heart sings for joy for the Unbelievers and the Unbelievers podcast for all the support they've given us to this year. Anybody who's left us a five-star review, we thank all of you from the bottom of our little black hearts. 
because we wouldn't do we wouldn't be here we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you guys and we really do appreciate it that's a great thanksgiving ending right there shay and we are i second that notion we are thankful for each of you so you guys enjoy your thanksgiving go stuff yourselves silly we hope you i know i'm going to My little butterball that I'm carrying right now, she stays hungry. And Annie's going to say, you know what? I think I need some extra stuffing because Rory's hungry. She's hungry. It's always her fault. But no, thank you guys. And we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back again next week. So guys, until then, make sure you be aware and be safe. And because I mentioned Dexter, I guess we're going to go out listening to Dexter. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you again in a week. Bye-bye. Once again, thank you for listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out weekly on Paranormal Warehouse at ParanormalWarehouse.com, on iTunes at Serial Spirits, and on SoundCloud. Please rate and review the show. Follow us on all your social media apps. Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits, and on Instagram. Until next time, be aware and be safe.